0: Welcome back, listeners. So glad that you're here today. I have a really great topic for you. I am speaking today with Dr. Erin Klein and Dr. Karen Bernstein. Erin is a third-year pediatric resident at Northwestern University at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. She received her B.A. from Dartmouth College and medical degree from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. During medical school, she focused her research on improving the quality of medical student education on LGBTQ patient care. During residency, she has worked on increasing healthcare care worker participation in legislative advocacy and civic engagement. Long term, she is interested in a career in health services research and health policy with a focus on reducing health disparities. She lives in Chicago with her wife, Megan, who she just married this summer, and their dog, Granger. Dr. Bernstein is an adolescent medicine clinician and teacher with special interest in adolescent reproductive health, adolescent weight management, including obesity and eating disorders, and adolescent primary care for underserved youth. She is currently the director of the Division of Adolescent Medicine at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In addition, she is the director of the Adolescent Medicine Fellowship Training Program. She completed her pediatric residency at the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and her Adolescent Medicine Fellowship at the Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. She also completed an MPH at George Washington University. Dr. Bernstein's research interests include teen depression and mental health, adolescent risk-taking behaviors, spirituality among teens, and health source utilization. She is also very involved in and passionate about medical education. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Klein and Dr. Bernstein. Hi, Erin. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I am so delighted to have you. And I think this is a really important topic that we're going to get into. So. I'm going to just open it with how you guys know each other. I know Erin's a resident and you're faculty, Karen. So, where did your paths cross? Okay, so Dr. B was one of the first
1: adults that I came out to. She was actually my pediatrician growing up, and she saw me and my brothers starting around maybe 12 or 13. And then when I was in college, she was one of the first adults that I came out to and really helped support me during. a more challenging time. And then we continued to stay in touch throughout college and after college and when I was deciding if I wanted to apply to medical school. And then when I was trying to decide if I wanted to be a pediatrician or something else, she's been a mentor and now is a friend. And so when I was deciding if I wanted to do this podcast, I couldn't think of anyone better to do it with.
0: I love that. I love that. What a nice you know relationship it speaks to what we do in pediatrics and that's that you know longitudinal relationship with our patients i just went to a wedding reception recently for one of my patients that i've known since elementary school and it was just so lovely so how nice for you karen to see her kind of bloom and and grow so talk a little bit about your your part of that friendship sure it's been a very very rewarding
2: experience so I believe I started seeing Erin for primary care when she was in junior high and um, just did routine visits and then kind of helped her through some as an adolescent medicine physician who also does primary care, helped her through some of the ups and downs of normal adolescence. I believe it was in college, right Erin, that she came for a, a visit, kind of an acute care visit and had some noticeable distress. And so we talked for a while and At the time, Erin, whose family I knew as well because of taking care of her brothers, came out and she was quite upset and nervous about what that would mean for her and her life. And so the cute and funny part of the story is I said to Erin, well, how can I be helpful? What, What can I do? Do you want me to help you tell your parents? And Aaron said, Dr. B, I can't even tell them that I'm a Democrat. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so. Which is which is bigger, <laughs> the so. political or the sexual yeah. identity? Yeah. <laughs> oh so. my God, I love that so much. Well, Maybe. I'm curious because Karen, you were seeing her as an adolescent. Was there a time, I mean, I know I ask about sexuality. But I don't know that I do it that great. Do you think if, you know, there had been an opportunity, Erin, would you have come out sooner or were you just not ready to do that? So Dr. B can probably speak a little bit to the great ways that she asks
1: her patients these questions. But I think one of the things that's changed a lot between, you know, over a decade ago when I was coming Mm -hmm. out and today is that there's so much more representation of LGBTQ or I might I might use the word queer a little bit more in this podcast. And the reason I'll use that is that it tends to be like word that often youth in Gen Z will use as a more a word to express like the spectrum of identities and orientations that are counter to the mainstream. So it sometimes is a catch all term used to include those that don't identify as just exclusively straight or might have non-binary identities. So there's so much larger representation of queer identities in media, maybe even in their schools and in just like teachers, things like that, that youth are coming out so much earlier than they were like 10, 15 years ago that I don't know that I would have but like I always felt supported in my like healthcare visits. And so that's why I felt like it was a safe place for me to share that information. I think though, like part of why it was so distressing for me was just that I like didn't have those representations. So like internalized homophobia, even though there is some, like there is more representation is something that a, a lot of youth still struggle with where it's that, you know, there's not just this, like society is telling you that like you're, there's a stigma, but a lot of times youth themselves will hold these beliefs that like they are not, think that their identity is not as valid and that um, have to deal with a lot of those feelings and things and a lot of distress related to that.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I guess I'm thinking back, you know, when I think about certainly like the media, I, I think everybody thinks about Ellen DeGeneres, which was a big deal when she disclosed. I mean, I think she lost her job over it. And you know, but then she did a talk show and I don't know how many adolescents watch Ellen, you know, and then Will and Grace. <laughs> those those are the two that I think of where that became, you know, became entering into the mainstream. So one of the things you said, and I don't want to forget, Erin, was um the term queer. That for me feels really, I think it would it would have been degrading in the past when I was younger and so to to use that term feels really awkward but it sounds like I need to just get over that.
1: Yeah, so it's definitely a term that has been reclaimed. So a lot of adolescents and like young like folks folks in Gen Z don't use the same terms that maybe millennials or Gen X do to identify. So many of them will use terms like when speaking about their sexuality like pansexual and that's because their partners might not be identifying it's just a woman Woman or man, they might like if you have partners that are non binary, you're not either bisexual, you are identical, like your partners are all different genders. So, or like a spectrum of gender. So, I think being open when you're asking questions about sexuality and gender orientation is so critical because the language the Gen Z uses is constantly evolving. And there's like a really nice glossary of terms on the HRC's website that can kind of highlight for pediatric provider, some of the language that you might hear either adolescents or like youth or even, you know, adults are adopting as well that um, will help p- people find words that really fit what they feel works for them. But it's definitely been something that's been reclaimed.
0: Yeah. And I think that's something we're going to just have to accept and figure it out. I, I would say sometimes, uh, you know, again, I'm at the older, I, I'm not even sure what uh, generation I in it these days, but older generations for sure, you know, is that I don't want to say the wrong thing and sort of stumble over the words. I think the first time I heard patent sexual, the only thing I could think of was it's all good, you know? And so I don't know, maybe Kieran, you can chime in on how do you ask? I mean, how, how do you make this easy for easier for kids? So I
2: think that this is a really great question and, and probably Applies to all areas of pediatrics, and so the first thing I would say is that I don't make any assumptions. I come into the room each time each visit, even if it's a patient I know well and meet them where they are for that visit. try to be open and listen at every at every visit where it's appropriate. so if it's a well visit or a visit for perhaps a sexual health concern where it would be appropriate for me to ask their sexual orientation or the or the Gender or sex of their partners, I ask a full spectrum of, of questions each time, even if they've identified one gender, sex preference in the past. And I think it's really important, then, even with terminology, to listen to the patient and then follow their lead. So ask them how they describe themselves, ask them how they describe their partners. And then use those words that they're using in that visit and follow their lead. So, oh, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, so, I mean, like, what are the words literally? So if I'm, um, you know, I'm a 15 year old and I'm sitting and I'm like, hey, Dr. B. And you ask me about school and we talk about that a little bit. And then what do you say to me when it gets to the sex, drugs and rock and roll?
2: Um, Well, we usually start with a less. Stressful questions like sure. home and school and that yep. sort of stuff and sort of ease in it it depends a little on the age of the patient um in these in these scenarios, but I think you said 15. So in that case, I would first ask what pronouns do you use and how do you identify.
0: Mm, okay.
2: And then I know where they are. And then I usually ask, Are you romantically interested in males, females, both, neither not sure? prefer not to answer, or none of these describe what you feel. Wow. And I kind of say a, the a, same a, <laughs> list every single
0: time. Wow, that's that's a long sentence.
2: <laughs> it I is. Like,
0: I like that, though. I'm going to make sure that I get that down. So you have to email that phraseology so I can make sure that I put it in the show notes because I think that's really helpful.
2: I've not gotten feedback on it. I don't know what Aaron thinks about that, but I ask it every time in the same way. It just kind of comes out. And in that way, the patient kind of knows what to expect at every visit. Sometimes they'll interrupt me before I've finished asking and just, you know, state their answer. Yeah. I don't know, Aaron, if you have thoughts on that.
1: I asked something pretty similar, but I usually, a lot of times I say boys are like, I, I don't say males and females. Sometimes I say like if they're younger boys and girls, just depending on how like young I'm asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I start my questions asking about their friends before I ask about them. Like, are your friends starting to have romantic relationships? And then I ask about them because sometimes they'll volunteer like, oh yeah, my friends are, but I'm not, or like, I'm not interested in that if they're like 12 and 13.
2: I think so an important a- part there is that I definitely do that for sure with drugs, with the drug questions. Yeah. I usually start with friends, but individuals generally are aware of their romantic preferences or interests by early adolescence. So mm-hmm. so even if they're not in a relationship or sexually experienced at all, giving them the opportunity to identify who they're having a crush on or who they might be interested mm-hmm. in in a non-judgmental open environment, I think is
0: beneficial. I love the way you asked about What pronouns do you use and how do you identify? Because that to me says, I'm cool with whatever you're going to tell me that that sort of sets the stage for much like, you know, I ask all my patients about how they're feeling and their mental health. And we always ask about, you know, depression and suicide. It sort of normalizes that this is what we're going to do. And that feels like a phrase I could use comfortably, you know, that I wouldn't be stumbling over it. I think one
2: thing that has kind of changed that conversation a little bit in a good way is EMRs. So sometimes if I'm alone with the patient, we just recently switched to a new EMR. So that gives me the opportunity to say, in our new medical record, we have the opportunity to identify your pronouns and your gender preferences. Here's the list that we have. Would you like me to put one of these on? So that That gives it a little bit more officialness.
0: And is that something, I'm just curious, because our EMR is beginning to do where you can at least acknowledge what what you'd like to be called name-wise. When you do that, let's say it's a female but identifies as he, is that something that a parent could see on the chart if the child adolescent wasn't ready to come out to the parent? Yes, and
2: so there's actually a big disclaimer at the top that I read out loud to them. this will be this will show up on your after visit summary. okay. In, um, so I say if you don't want this to be on here, that is totally fine as well. But it is something to be very aware of. There are other ways to put in in sort of sticky notes or or things like that to put in patient mm-hmm. preferred names, preferred pronouns, but that doesn't always get checked by everyone.
0: I love the preferred name option. I think that, I mean, I think that because I don't use my first name, so I like being called by my name that I use. So I like that option. You were going to say something else, Erin.
1: So with the Cures Act or with the Act this summer that now like all of our notes are shared with our patients almost immediately after each visit, one of the things that's really important for your LGBT patients to talk about is confidentiality. So I think after asking these questions about, you know, like, if a patient does share this information with you about their either sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, it's so important to ask, like, who have you shared this information with? And like, either do you want me to help you share it with people in your family or like anyone in your life and if not using confidential notes however that is the case in your EMR or not recording it if you don't have that feature because many um, patients maybe aren't at a stage where they've shared this with people in their lives and with now all of our notes being released or at least like Um, working on that being the case, depending on your institution, it's so important to respect that confidentiality for adolescents.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, it's all you know, well and good that patients begin to have, you know, there's this transparency, but I feel like they forgot the adolescents when they were thinking about, you know, what pops up in the AVS and, you know, we're supposed to ask, you know, kids are supposed to give proxy to parents, but, you know, if your parent's standing there and you say, do you want your parents to get that information, Then kid's 15, it's hard to say, no, I don't want my mom to know. You know, it puts the onus on the kids, which I think sometimes is hard.
2: It's very hard. And there's a lot of nuance that I think I agree was not taken into consideration when these laws were made, specifically that laws and states vary for what must be maintained as confidential for teenagers. So having a one-size-fits-all approach to note sharing and within the, the EMR actually violates the law in many states. But the onus is then on the institution or office to put in the appropriate measures so that they are in line with the confidentiality laws of their state.
0: Right, right. And, you know, I, again, I think often, you know, kids and teens get left out of these big healthcare decisions, which is why we pediatricians need to be loud voices. Well, I was going to ask you a little bit about mental health concerns for LGBTQ youth, queer youth. And I know when I I'm kind of worked a lot in the suicide prevention realm and that the suicide rates and attempts are much higher in this population. What else can you tell me about that? So that's
1: a really great question. And I think one of the things I'd love to start by leading with is that it's like important to know that it's not being LGbt that causes these mental health problems. It's that like living in like a household or a s- attending school or being in a community or society that doesn't affirm your identity that's more of a risk factor for mental health concerns. So I think thinking about it from like a minority stress model is a helpful way to understand. LGBT mental health concerns. And then also makes sense for when you see a lot of the data that in general, when you th- thinking about intersectionality, so that intersect, uh, that like Native and Indigenous youth or Black youth often will tend to have higher rates of some of like, suicide or some of the other mental health comorbidities because they're having a, like additional discrimination and biases that affect their Mental health. So that stigma, victimization, and prejudice leads to a stressful social environment that can compromise the mental health of LGBT individuals. But it's not being LGBT that in, impacts their mental health.
0: So it, uh, it's not who you are, it's what other people think. I mean, it's that acceptance. And mm-hmm. I think Brene Brown, who I love, talks a lot about belonging. And if you don't feel like you belong or, or are seen for who you mm-hmm. are, or that who you are yeah. to other people isn't good enough that that's mm-hmm. where the the bad feelings come does that sound right yeah
1: exactly also, it's that like expectation go ahead Aaron. Oh, go ahead i, I just want to same- also
2: add in that that Aaron's going to talk a bit about some of these increased risks especially with mental health but i also think it's important to to say that the majority of lgbtq youth emerge into adulthood with very intact and stable mental health and little or no increased behaviors. So, and lead very happy and productive lives. So I think some of these numbers do sound scary and are very important to understand and look at, but also as Erin said, it's not because they identify as LGBTQ youth that they're at risk. It's because who we are as a society.
0: So I think it sounds like we have to be careful that we don't say, well, if you were different, if you were just, you know, quote, quote marks the norm, then you wouldn't have all these problems. And I think
1: it goes to like making our environments better, and some of the things we'll talk about later that we as physicians can do in our communities to reduce the risk that these things happen for, like, you know, kids in the next 10 years so that we don't see as much of this. So, just I can talk a little bit about how frequently we see some of these comorbidities in mental health. So, one of the One of the big data sets that we have is from the Trevor Project, which is a national organization that provides crisis intervention and suicide prevention services to LGBT youth. And they, for the past few years, have captured data on LGBT adolescents, so 13, 24-year-olds, and just shared their 2021 survey of about 35,000 LGBT youth and found that about 40% had seriously considered Considered suicide with an increased risk among um, their native and indigenous youth and black youth compared with white and Asian and Pacific Islander youth. And they also found that COVID had made the COVID pandemic had made living at home more stressful for about 80% of LGBT youth. And that's something I heard endorsed in my practice too, that like, you know, kids were like, couldn't find like to therapy because if they wanted to talk to their counselors. Like, And they weren't up to their parents. There wasn't really somewhere for them to do that. And um, about half of LGBT youth wanted counseling in this survey in the past year, but were unable to receive it. And so I think that's something that's really hard. You know, they weren't able to get, many LGBT youth weren't able to get the therapy or like mental health support services that they wanted. And something for us as pediatricians to be aware of that finding, you know, counselors that we can uh, refer to that are affirming to patients. And just being aware that, you know, like during this time when youth are exploring their identities, having people that can help and support them and being that stable, uh, accepting and affirming an open environment as the provider can be so helpful and just knowing what to look for and screen for during this time.
0: Yeah, I I think, you know, being in homes, I mean, if you have great supportive relationships, I think a lot of people have surprisingly found that they brought their families closer, but if the environment did not feel supportive or was even toxic, then it was, then it would feel like you were trapped and, you know, you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't see anybody. And I know some of my kids that were involved in some of our organizations in our community, they, you know, they didn't have meetings anymore. So there was no place for them to go that felt, felt safe.
1: The um. Other kind of on um, the other side of that coin is that you know LGBT youth are at a higher risk for like violence victimization so than their heterosexual peers, and this data comes from the the National Survey of High School S- Students. So that's the like youth behavior. So the youth, IRBS Youth yeah, Behavior Yes, thank you. Yes, yeah, yeah. thank you. The youth. Exactly. So these students have like a higher risk of, you know, not only bullying, but like sexual dating violence, physical violence, electronic bullying, and like being threatened at school or missing school because of feeling unsafe. So there is, you know, at this, there across like all of those categories, there's a higher risk for some students who were maybe experiencing a lot of violence at school, being home might have been better, but it's hard to know like we're kind of what's going on there, and just screening for that kind of what kind of treatment they're getting at school, and if that's kind of your patient, can you advocate for better school policies or helping them? Like, if there's anything you can do there for the family, that's something we can think about as pediatricians too.
0: Well, you said something important, and that is advocating for youth, all youth, but in particular some of our minoritized youth, um, youth that are there's a lot of stigma around who who they see themselves as being. Karen, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, the pediatrician just out in the field can advocate?
2: Sure. So, I think advocacy starts can start very small. So, as a provider, one area that and you can really make an impact as an advocate is, is just your office environment. So, using gender-neutral terms with your patients, advertising practices that are accepting of members of the LGBTQ community, educating your staff and other providers to be comfortable discussing sexual orientation, gender orientation, and sexual practices. I think sometimes we don't think about that as advocacy, but if you are the only one in that environment who has experience or knowledge in those areas, getting everyone else on board is a form of advocacy in a slightly bigger role. One area that I've been doing a lot of advocacy is on in our hospital, in our hospital committees. So uh, working on that the SOGI form, which is the form that says that where you choose the gender identity pronouns, preferred name, working on getting that to be used and accepted within the hospital confidentiality requirements for adolescents, getting everyone up to speed on what we're in Illinois, but in what Illinois laws are on that matter. So those are some sort of smaller areas. And then a little more broad is, is working with schools and school boards. I think schools really look towards pediatricians as experts in children and experts in health, and really will listen to what you have to say. So providing information for comprehensive sexual education, for example, is a is an easy area where pediatricians can, can get involved. I know Erin is, is super involved in advocacy at a much broader national level, so might have some more information on that.
0: Before you say that, Erin, I was just going to ask quickly, Karen, are there resources for offices that would want to educate, like, you know, a PowerPoint set or a a video that a staff could watch together or talking points? Is there anything like that available?
2: There's actually a lot available. So the Adolescent Health Initiative is an organization out of Michigan, actually, that has specific trainings on making your office adolescent friendly, not necessarily specific to queer youth, but in their trainings, It is a great resource on how to have your office be accepting of everyone, a comfortable place for all adolescents. So I really recommend their trainings. ACT for Youth has similar training sessions. That's ACT for Youth. The Trevor Project actually has some trainings for youth serving professionals and then also recommendations for research and support for patients. So those are some real good basic how to get your office to be a safe and welcoming place. The National LGBT Health Education Center, which is a program of the Fenway Institute, is is possibly the most well-known organization that has put forth recommendations. They're not specific to pediatrics or to youth, but they're very well accepted and A great resource for information. It's it's about like a 25-page document, I believe, that's easy to download and can then be disseminated to your staff.
0: Okay. Erin, let me ask you about, this sounds like something that, you know, AAP could push out or put on websites or something where it would be accessible to find out this information. What's that look like on the national scene as far as advocacy?
1: So APE has quite a few things going on in this arena. So for anyone who's interested in just staying up to date on what's going on for LGBT education and keeping up to date with like new materials as they're coming out, there is the section on LGBT health and wellness. So you can join that listserv and they'll kind of send you up to date papers. And then inside of the um, website, there's a ton of different materials that you can read and review. So I would echo all of the things that Dr. B had mentioned, but then also that's a great website or great section to join. And then they put on panels and webinars at AAP. And then they also host like webinars throughout the year. The for trainees, everyone um, is hopefully on the section on pediatric trainees. I think we all, as residents, get to like our get to be members for free. And it, it this year, the national advocacy campaign is mental health, and the third quarter's focus is LGBT mental health. So they're creating some materials for every residency program focused on LGBT mental health that your AAP rep should be sending to you. So if you haven't gotten those, haven't seen those, ask your AAP rep to reach out, but they should be coming this third quarter. Um, So both of those are things that you, either a trainee, you should be a member of that section. And if you're not, talk to your AAP rep about how to join, or you should be able to just join on the website. And then nationally, the AAP as their state advocacy and their like federal advocacy teams that have been really critical in preventing what has been unfortunately the worst year on record for anti-transgender legislation and specifically legislation all across the country targeting trans youth. So this year there was more than 120 bills introduced in state legislatures targeting trans youth with many pat enacted into law. Or many of the bills that targeted trans youth we're focused on two sort of main areas so one of those areas was targeting trans youth participation in sports, and seven of those were enacted into law. And then one of the uh, the other area was blocking gender-affirming care for transgender youth, and one of those actually was introduced into law in Arkansas. AAP, partnering with ACLU or Lambda Legal or other organizations, have been working very hard in all of those states to, block, to try to keep those bills from getting passed. So, like, APE for Arkansas held, like, a joint press conference with the ACLU, and it's actually pediatricians in those Mm -hmm. states who are the most critical voices to preventing those bills from getting passed. So, pediatricians who work locally, who see kids, like, their statements to the state legislators are what actually prevented them from being passed in the years past or in all of the other states where those 120 bills were enacted. So if you're a pediatrician in anywhere in the country where these bills have been enacted and not, or have been introduced, um, your voice can make a huge difference just by calling your local state legislators. So it's really the like their voters who they care the most about. And I, uh, I'll send you a link where you can look up like if any of these bills have been introduced in your state. Um, so right now in Arkansas, there is some an injunction that's been passed that's allowing kids to still receive gender affirming care, but it actually would have criminalized pediatricians too for continuing to provide like puberty blockers, hormones or anything
0: for these kids. This makes it so, crazy because there's so much rhetoric about, you know, don't tell me what to do and, you know, sort of this freedom, but very busy telling people how to practice medicine and you know, making laws around, you know, our bodies and how, you know, that relationship that we have in the patient room, which is only the business of the patient and the physician. And this is not the realm for legislation.
1: And I think a lot of times we as doctors think like, oh, there must be someone who's so much more qualified than me. But, you know, like I've spoken at a couple of like city council and like school board meetings. And really like when you have that MD, MD or DO or that white coat on like your voice matters so much and like you can have so like youth unfortunately like even though like kids are the ones who are being impacted like your you as that physician you'll take in so much more seriously so you coming and telling your story specifically if you're talking to your um, state legislator because you're the one who elects them like your voice matters they know you hold Influence in your community as a physician, you really can't influence their decisions. So, according to the big way you can make an impact if um, caring about these like sport, these youth participation in sports or these gender affirming care bills is important to you is coordinating with your state chapter of the AAP because we expect we'll probably see just um, a lot of them next year. And as Dr. B mentioned, the school boards is really another great way to have an influence. So, um, working on like gender and um, like se- sexual orientation and gender inclusive sex ed curriculum is something a lot of schools just aren't up to date on so it's something you could help with and really make a big um, difference for your like middle school or
0: high school um, kids. Yeah, I think that there's tremendous power that we do not always recognize or use is that you know that like you said that MDDO is is a very powerful tool. Karen what what are your thoughts on on this?
2: Well it makes me crazy as well
0: <laughs> just like
2: you said I would add another way to advocate is is with letter writing and editorials so writing your newspapers your congressmen your state representatives is is important in in writing for publication writing things that are going to get published on blogs on web magazines. I, I, it, they can be very powerful and a, a great, an easy-ish way to right. advocate. What
0: what what's the language that you use? Because I've come up against this and I struggle with how to answer in a way that's not persuasive, but using the appropriate language in terms is when people say, "Well, it's not fair for you know somebody who is trans from a you know, female to male to participate in sports. that That is unfair to the girls. What do you say to that?
2: I don't know that I've been asked that question specifically. I mean, I've heard it asked, but I don't know that I have a lot of, of practice in, in how I would respond to that. I think I would need to think about it a little bit so I didn't say something immediately.
0: Because I feel like people are, you know, people see that as a fairness thing, that it's not you know, the the playing field isn't level. Any thoughts on that, Erin?
1: I've heard really sassy responses. And I think that's a like. But that's I think that like the I think that, that like some of the committees on sports and things like that are working on making recommendations. But I think like we should not be in the business of policing people's bodies. And like the I think like those fairness arguments need to go out the window that like like that Gen Z is not a binary generation and like that, that kind of thinking is going to just be outdated. So like like we shouldn't put like our thinking and like the way that we're like, you know, there's talk now like from the AMA saying like we need to take sex and gender off of birth certificates for like public facing. Like, so the way that we think about gender is just not going to make sense for this upcoming, like for kids these days with like up to 10% of them potentially identifying in ways that aren't binary. It just isn't. We shouldn't put our labels on them and like police who can participate in sports and things like that. So I don't think we should put our rules on this generation of kids.
2: I think that maybe I would focus on there are a lot of things that make our bodies different, that make our performance different. And sex and gender may be one part of that, but it may not be. And the more important thing is that people who are athletes who enjoy athletics and are high performing in their chosen sport should be allowed to participate in whatever way it seems right for them. I feel a little bit like some of this should have gone out the window with Title IX, but
0: yeah, well, yeah, this is, <laughs> it's a hot button item, you yeah. know, and I know, so maybe we'll see some more. Language and guidance coming out of the section because I think that that's, I mean, because it's I've I've encountered that you know, and I'm I kind of struggle you know that well maybe hormone therapy levels the field in terms of you know if people are worrying about you know testosterone's going to increase somebody's you know if I'm a born female trans to a male and I'm on testosterone that you know it whatever it, it somehow gives me an advantage that's not fair, and that's what I've come up against and what I've, I've struggled with. I don't know how to answer that. So I appreciate, you know, what you've said, and that would help well,
1: me. What I would say is the AAP has spoken out against all of these bills, including they do have, I think it's a, I want to make sure it's the, the council on sports, like is, I think like they're working on one of their like comprehensive, I think they're working on, like, a bigger statement, but, like, the Council on Sports is not in support of any of, like, any of these state bills, and the AAP is against, has spoken out against all of the bills that are limiting trans youth participation in sports. Like, the AAP does not support it in any way, and neither does the Council like their I think it's a council on sports, but whatever the like name of that committee is has not does not support it as well. And they did like issue statements for I think most of those state bills that
0: were introduced. I'll do a little research and see if I can include that in the show notes. Well, you guys have given us some pretty powerful tools, some language, and I I appreciate you sharing your story, Erin and I think we could have another hour discussion on this. So I feel like we just kind of touched the surface, but I always ask my guests, one is if you have anything else in closing that you, you know, a take home. And then I always ask if you could go back and talk to yourself at a younger place in your life. So maybe as a med student or a resident, what would you tell yourself? I'll start with you, Erin. I guess
1: so. if I was gonna talk to my younger self, I think that one of the things that Dr. B had said earlier is, you know, all of those youth, when we're talking about so many LGBT youth struggling with mental health when they're younger, I think that coming out process can be so challenging and be associated with so much distress. I would tell my younger self that, you know, you like that it does get better and like you think like you can thrive as an adult and that a lot of those worries that I have that they like the things do get better.
0: How about you, Karen?
2: Um, I think the only other thing that I would add is I, I think that Gen Z has, has taught us a lot in how to approach everyone with love and not put people in binary categories. I think 30 years ago, if you would have asked someone if they knew someone in their life that identified as LGBTQ, Many people would say no, and I don't think that that's the case now. So we've made a lot of progress over the years, which has allowed us to have conversations like this. So to practice with love, you know, approach each patient with love in your heart, which I try to do every day. My younger self, I would tell my younger self, don't let perfection stand in the way of progress.
0: I love love that. It's been a, it's a fun question to ask people. It's very varied. So, but I hear a lot of, you know, I would tell myself, you know, take a deep breath or enjoy the moment or that kind of thing. But I would agree with Erin. I, you know, telling somebody that it would, it's going to get better, especially when you're in the middle of your training, because it's not always great, (laughs) you know, and I think about, you know, when my kids were teenagers and how hard that was. And somebody told me it'll get better and it did, it did. (laughs) So that's great. Well, I so appreciate your time and your, you know, your honesty and courage about sharing some of this, because I I know sometimes these are hard conversations. So I I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for inviting us. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Thank you so much to Erin and Karen for sharing all of their ideas and really helpful comments about how we can best talk with our patients and make them feel comfortable and welcome in our practices. So here are my takeaways. Number one, let's talk a little bit about language because words do matter. So Erin talked about referring to LGBTQ individuals using the term queer. I don't know about you, but for me, in the past, this was often used as a derogatory term, but Aaron explained that the term has been reclaimed, and it is an inclusive and catch-all term that is comfortable for youth. So, you know, again, our, our youth are in a different place than we were, so, you know, I think we have to adjust. Number two, in talking with kids, we often stumble about opening the conversations, and I know I do. Dr. Bernstein stated, don't make assumptions when you go into a room be open and listen. And she said, it's important, even if you've known this patient for a long time, go in with fresh ears and eyes. Number three, here's some phrasing that she uses. What pronouns do you use and how do you identify? And I think that's really lovely and simple. It lets the teen know that you are open to the discussion. And following with, do you think you are romantically interested in males, females, both, neither, Not sure or none of these describe your interests. So that's a lot to remember, but I think with practice, you can use that and it might be something you can work into a template. Number four, many EMRs now capture sexual orientation and gender identity or SOGI data to allow preferred pronouns and names. And I think this is really helpful This does appear on the after-visit summaries, and, you know, with the CARES Act, a lot of our notes and documentation are now visible to patients to improve transparency of care. However, they did not think about adolescence and confidentiality, and it gets complicated and messy. So uh, Dr. Bernstein really recommended that you have the conversation with the teen that information may be seen, like if they put their pronouns are different than their birth sex, and that that might be uncomfortable. So, you know, just be transparent with the teen about what it means when you document certain things. Number five, the mental health of our teens is critical and, of course, has just skyrocketed in problems during COVID, just making a crisis even more of a crisis. And this is even more so in our LGBTQ youth, especially those from the BIPOC community. BIPOC meaning Black, Indigenous, and people of color. The Trevor Project reported data collected from 35,000 youth, 13 to 24. And what they found was that 40% indicated that they had considered suicide. I mean, that's just staggering. 80% said that their home had become increasingly stressful during COVID and nearly 50% indicated that they wanted help but could not access it. Number six, Dr. Klein noted, and it's a really important point, that the problem is not that the youth are queer. It is that we and families in society still stigmatize and victimize them. So the problem isn't them, the problem's us. Number seven, so where do we start to open our doors and hearts to kids? On a smile scale, educate yourself and your staff. I mean, this is a really, you know, important place to start. Is your practice openly accepting? And there are lots of resources that were discussed on the podcast, but a couple that were highlighted were the Adolescent Health Initiative, or AHI, Act for Youth, and the Trevor Project. And I'll include links to those on the show notes. Number eight, moving up the impact ladder, consider hospital committees, policies, and EMR options. Many hospitals now have EDI committees, and that may be a place where voice matters. Number nine, reaching out to school boards can be powerful, and our white coats carry a lot of influence, and I think we forget that and underestimate it. Number 10, on the state and national level, learn about state legislation And speak up for LGBTQ youth with your legislators. Weigh in on bills that affect the practice of medicine and the sacred space that we have with patients. There is no room for legislation to be telling us how we should relate with our patients, what we talk about, and the care we provide. Number 11, write op-eds, blogs, and post on social media. Again, your voice is powerful and matters. Number 12, the American Academy of Pediatrics is out front on the advocacy level. And if you're an AAP member, consider joining the section on LGBTQ health and wellness. And if you're a trainee, make sure that you are part of the section on pediatric trainees. They are one of the most powerful and active sections in the entire academy. So again, sign up. Number 13, the final message, practice with love. And I think this is a really powerful message that we care about kids, we see them, and we accept them for who they are. So with that, continue the great work that you do. I know that all of you care deeply about children and that we all want to do better and to be kind and You know, we don't want our words to harm someone. So take good care of yourselves. And if this was helpful to you, please share it with a friend and, you know, feel free to reach out to me and let me know, are there other topics that would be helpful to you? Because I would really want to make this, you know, your platform so that you can get your information right at your, you know, earbuds. So have a great day and take care of yourself. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.